Let the wand affix its beam. The only emperor is the emperor of every flavor beans. You're listening to the Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club that's actually about death. There have been too many mistakes where Harry Potter is concerned. Some of them have been my own. That Potter lives is due more to my errors than to his triumphs. But I know better now. I understand those things that I did not understand before. I must be the one to kill Harry Potter. And I shall be. I'm Heather Price Wright. And I'm Alex Dallenberg. Welcome back! Here we are. It is book seven. It is the last season, as it were, of the Quibbler podcast, which is deeply bittersweet, but... Much like Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Indeed. Rest assured, we have plenty of time still to spend together because this is a massive book. So we're very excited to be back with you. Here we are. And thanks for bearing with us during our extended hiatus. It wasn't that extended. It was a couple of months. That's true. Well, anyway, we are probably going to be switching to a an every other week format because uh, Heather's job responsibilities have escalated significantly and I work at a weekly news magazine. So, uh, but we should be a little more consistent, I think, at that pace. We're going to do our best to actually do episodes at a consistent rate, but I think we are going to go a little less frequent. Yeah, so probably twice a month. The pace got a little breakneck toward the end of the last book, and as you know, we sort of randomly went a few weeks here and there without episodes because things got a little hectic. Millennial burnout. It's a thing. We're not burned out of the podcast. But as I'm sure you can imagine, it's a fair amount of work, so... We are going to just try to be a little more, yeah, we're going to pace ourselves. So my hope is on dark weeks to actually put out uh, more newsletters uh, in the weeks we're off. So we won't be entirely leaving you in the lurch. So a good reminder to go to tinyletter.com slash quibblerpodcast for fun extra tidbits about the podcast and owl news. It's a very good newsletter. Being the member of this team that does not write the newsletter, I feel very (laughs) confident saying that it is consistently hysterical and very interesting. So you definitely do want to sign up for the newsletter, especially as we're going to pick up the pace with that as well. The next one is going to be a doozy because it's going to have a lot of cats-related content. Oh, Alex is obsessed with cats right now. I get That's a little late now, I guess, because cats is no longer burning up the internet. But trust me, it has something to do. There will be a Harry Potter connection. So I don't know if we've actually done this yet, but in the next 30 seconds or so probably of this podcast and thereafter, you will hear cursing, lots of it, and spoilers for this, the last installment in the Harry Potter cycle. You will also hear, oh shit, I didn't even tell you what, see, we cursed. I didn't even tell you what chapters we're reading this week. Uh, We're a little rusty. Welcome back, Heather and Alex. Yeah, we're just easing back into this, you know? This week, we are reading the first two chapters of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, which are called The Dark Lord Ascending and In Memoriam. Once again, spoilers and cursing. You will also hear some adult themes. This week's adult themes are Crushing Regret, Flesh-Eating Pets, Wand Envy, Left-Wing Professors, 
and all your faves are problematic. So, <laughs> launching us right back into the wizarding world, Alex, what happened this week? In this week's chapters, J.K. Rowling kicks off Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows by quoting from Aeschylus and William Penn. So, little Greek tragedy, a little bit of Quaker theology. Uh, it's a Harry Potter book. Why wouldn't there be? But then we meet two men in a moonlit lane uh meeting in a moonlit lane uh being not at all suspicious actually suspicious as hell it is two death eaters snape and some fucking guy named yaxley they've been out uh, doing death eater errands they kind of size each other up you know you do the villain thing like are you cool you cool okay we're cool and head on up the shadowy lane to uh, a big-ass mansion that is decked out with peacock statues. No, it's a real peacock. What? It's a real peacock. Did I miss this? Yes, that's a real live peacock. Never mind. Uh, no peacock statues, actual peacocks. Let me make sure that's true. All right, quick fact check. Strutting majestically along the top of the hedge, a pure white peacock. Yeah, it's a real guy. Why did I, in my memory, it was just like lots of peacock gargoyles? No, it's real birds. Wow, I, maybe people were right when they say we don't read these super closely. I read it closely. You remembered that it was an actual peacock. Why are there just peacocks? Higgledy because piggledy. the Malfoys are extra as hell. Just peacocks. Is this Patronus a peacock? I bet it is. I don't know. Clearly. Also, the whole thing that's cool about peacocks is their colors. Yeah, so why would have you have a pure white, white peacock? Just an albino peacock? That's so boring. The whole thing that's cool about them is the color of their feathers. This poor bird is just... It's weird that evil pets don't know that their owners are evil. Maybe they do. I guess do. Nagini, Nagini is evil. Nagini obviously does. But you know, like the James Bond cat, that's just a cat. He doesn't know <laughs> what's going on. You know? No sh In Disney movies... Like, the pug kind of knows that it's, like, Which evil. pug? In Pocahontas. Oh. Or, you know, the cat, the pe evil pets tend to be evil in Disney movies. But in just movie movies... It's just an animal. It's just an animal. So this poor fucking peacock, he doesn't know that he's just strutting around, like, the top of Evil Incorporated headquarters or whatever. I don't know. I don't know why I find that, like, poignant, but I do. Anyway, there's a real peacock. For some reason, I had gotten it into my mind that the Malfoys had peacock statues, but... They might also uh, have This those. is already so off the rails, guys. <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> Aren't you glad? So there's a white peacock, which I don't even know if that's possible in nature. I know we have some ornithologist types listening, so please, bird experts, let us know if this is a thing that actually exists. Um, you are one and one half pages in. <laughs> Sorry, I got through. Whenever there's a bird in these books, I just get thrown. You know, <laughs> I just want to focus on the bird, the bird news. Um, God, there's about to be some bad bird news in this book. I know. <laughs> this has it's all about the to get bad so bad news. for a bird. <laughs> um, anyway, so Yaxley's like, what the fuck is up with this peacock? Which literally, he doesn't say it quite like that, but they keep, they walk inside the house. It's the Malfoy's house. It's Malfoy Manor. It is the lair, headquarters, whatever you want to call it, of uh, the Death Eaters, who are actually... So they meet there, but they're actually incorporated in Delaware. But uh, Oh, God. Because that's, that's where everybody's incorporated. 
Um, with offshore bank accounts. In, like, Swiss Gringotts. Anyway, Yaxley and Snape walk into into a meeting of Death Eaters. Voldemort says, oh, it's Lovo. Lovo's there. He says, y'all are late, but whatever. Have a seat. Uh, Yaxley and Lovo give their reports. Snape says that Saturday next, the Order of the Phoenix is going to move Harry Potter from his current place of safety. Lovo's pretty happy about that because they're all, you know, sitting around doing what Death Eaters do, which is plotting to kill Harry Potter. Yaxley says, uh, I heard it differently. I heard from the Auror Dalish that they're going to move him the day before his 17th birthday. So, the, the stone's on Yaxley to, like, just contradict Snape in, in front of Lovo. Like, I don't know, kind of hats off to you, Yaxley. It was a, it was a bold move. Lovo does some evil monologuing. He says he realizes now that he has to be the one to kill Harry Potter and that they've missed a lot of chances. In a weird moment of self-reflection, Lovo says, ah, some of that was my fault, but uh, we're, we're gonna get him this time. But Lovo says he needs a wand. So he says, hey, Lucius, you're not doing anything with your wand, so can I have it? Uh, to be fair, he doesn't say, can I have it? No, he says, give give me your wand, dude. Lucius, who's just looking very haggard. Lucius also, I guess, between book six and seven has been sprung from Azkaban. Or has he been, was he sprung earlier? I don't remember when he was sprung. He's out now. Yeah, he's out. Yeah, Lu Lucius is just like looking pretty unhappy with this whole situation. L Lovo also compares his wand length with Lucius. And it, it seems like Lobo's wand is longer, so so there's some stuff happening there. Anyway, so after that um, sexually charged moment, Lovo asks Lucius why he's not happy that he's been crashing at his place for the past few months, uh, just kind of mocking him. Bellatrix Lestrange pipes up and says, There can be no greater honor for you to than for you to be staying here in our family's home. Uh, there's a moment of almost tenderness between Lovo and Bellatrix. He says, that means a lot, Bellatrix, coming from you. In the course of this meeting, we learn that the Death Eaters have successfully infiltrated the Ministry of Magic. Yaxley has put Pious Thickness, the head of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement, underneath an imperious curse, and he's planning to use Thickness to imperious other high-level ministry officials in preparation for a coup against the Minister for Magic, Rufus Scrimgeour. Lovo continues to use the Malfoys as a punching bag and makes fun of Bellatrix and Narcissa for the fact that their niece, Nymphadora Tonks, just got married to a werewolf, Remus Lupin. Lovo then gives a genocidal monologue about how all the Muggleborns and other riffraff need to be purged from wizarding families. This whole time, I forgot to mention this, there's been this figure floating above the table, above this whole meeting, immobilized. At this point, Voldemort addresses the prisoner. It's but but buh motherfucking Charity Burbage! who we've never met before, but she is the Muggle Studies professor at Hogwarts. Or was, rather. Lovo tells his crew that 
basically she wants, she thinks that muggles are equal to wizards, and she recently wrote an article in the Daily Prophet saying, uh, like basically sticking up for Muggleborns and saying it was good that uh, there are fewer pure blood wizards. So Lovo is super hella fucking pissed by this, and then just very dispassionately kills her using the Avada Kedavra curse. She crashes to the table. All the Death Eaters jump back. Lovo turns to his pet snake, Nagini, remember her? And says, oh, she's just been like hanging on Lovo's like neck this whole time, like a weird snake scarf. He says, dinner, Nagini. And Nagini slithers toward Charity Burbage's body uh, and starts to chow down. Worth noting that Charity has also been begging for her life from Severus Snape, who taught alongside her presumably yeah. for decades and who is ignoring her pleas for mercy. So all y'all bitches that still think Snape's a good guy. Well, what's Snape supposed to do in this moment? Blow his cover? I mean, fuck that guy. Yeah. This is so nasty, but go on. It's This is a rough moment. It's pretty bleak. Ugh, Snape Burge is like not okay. Shouldn't have uh, taken Snape's like lunchable from the faculty fridge or whatever yeah. that one time. I don't know. Uh, so that was fucking dark. We then pivot into chapter two, back to Privet Drives. Pivot to Privet. The first words are Harry was bleeding, so that does not bode well. He has cut his finger on a piece of the two-way mirror that. Sirius gave him in book five because he's cleaning out his trunk. Harry is uh, Harry's going through all his school stuff uh, at Privet Drive. His trunk is super fucking dirty. He's like never actually cleaned it out before in all six years of going to Hogwarts. There's like a layer of desiccated beetle eyes uh, at the bottom of it. So Harry, Harry's kind of a slob, but we knew that. Uh, we learned that Harry can't do healing spells. Which is going to be a problem. Seems important to learn. He makes a mental note. Although he can't do magic right now anyway, because it's summertime. Uh, he can't do magic till he turns 17, outside of school. And for the rest of the chapter, Harry basically reads the newspaper. Harry reads the newspaper in this chapter. He's got a big old pile of Daily Prophets. He reads an obituary of Albus Dumbledore by Dumbledore's friend, Elpheus Doge. We learn a lot about Dumbledore's past. We learned that, that just before Dumbledore went to Hogwarts, his dad was put into Azkaban for a violent attack on three young muggles. Also, Dumbledore, the author was like school pals. Elpheus was friends with Dumbledore because nobody wanted to be friends with Elpheus Doge because he was recovering from Dragonpox. So that shows Dumbledore's great humanity. Uh, he wins every school award. But before he's about to take a trip around the world with Elpheus to celebrate graduating, his mother dies, leaving Dumbledore to care for the family. Fast forward a few years, tragedy strikes the Dumbledores again. His sister dies, his younger sister Ariana, leading to an estrangement between him and his brother Aberforth. But basically, Elpheus Doge says Dumbledore was awesome and the Wizarding World has uh, lost a great hero. Harry thinks to himself how he'd never really asked Dumbledore about his life and reflects on how weird it is to think about a teenage Dumbledore. Harry then turns his attention to the current issue of the Daily Prophet and notices that there's an interview with Rita Skeeter. She has a book about Albus Dumbledore forthcoming called The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore. 
Uh, the interview with Rita is not hagiographical at all. She says that she has discovered a lot of dirt in Dumbledore's past, and he wasn't as white as his beard. That's a direct quote. Uh, also, it was 900 pages long, and she wrote it in like four weeks after Dumbledore died. So, impressive, but suspicious. Others, including Elpheus Doge, are saying there's less truth in Rita's book than a chocolate frog card. I guess it will be up to us, the reader, to uh, determine that. I mean, the main dirt so far, she alludes to the fact that Dumbledore like studied dark arts, uh, dabbled in the dark arts as a young man. She suggests that his famous duel with the dark wizard Grindelwald, there was more to it than meets the eye. And she's also not super convinced that Snape killed Dumbledore. She also claims that she's still very close with Harry Potter, which makes Harry <laughs> yeah, pretty that, bad. Yeah, so Harry, Harry's fucking mad. He screams super loud, and which alarms someone using their lawnmower. Harry then, yeah, Harry just screams, lies! Uh, sits on his bed, and in the shard of the two-way mirror, he thinks he sees a flash of blue, but then he realizes that maybe his mind was just playing tricks on him because he knows that he'll never see the blue eyes of Albus Dumbledore again. And that's what happens in this week's chapters. So this is the first Harry Potter book with an epigraph because we fancy, huh? <laughs> and both of these epigraphs are intense as hell. So she is coming out swinging. I want to read a little bit of the Aeschylus epigraph just because I think it actually really does set the stage for how phenomenally fucked up this book is about to be. Oh, the torment bred in the race, the grinding scream of death and the stroke that hits the vein, the hemorrhage none can staunch, the grief, the curse that no man can bear. But there is a cure in the house and not outside it, no. Not from others, but from them, their bloody strife. We sing to you, dark gods beneath the earth. Now here, you blissful powers underground, answer the call, send help, bless the children, give them triumph now. Dang, dude. That's like a very badass epigraph, but it's also just so funny that in this last book, she was like, what if we made this just hard? <laughs> what if we went straight to fucking Aeschylus? She was a classics major for Oh a yeah, time. no, yeah. she's smart as hell, mm -hmm. and it's a great... It's a great entry point, honestly. Yeah. And incredibly intense and exciting. And it was just, I was like, oh, we're setting the stage for like a grown-up novel. So anyway, there's that. Highbrow as heck. Way to go, J.K. Rowling. And then we enter this horrifying Death Eater scene. <laughs> so first of all, what is this meeting? Is this like a board meeting? Yeah, I don't. Is this a regularly scheduled thing is clearly like because there's something that they can <laughs> or whatever uh it's something that you can be late to so <laughs> it's planned yeah i still just don't really understand the kind of command structure of the death eaters which i guess isn't important but i would like to see an org chart it seems very yeah besides lovo being clearly in charge it's uh i don't know there's not they're all just weird stooges like besides snape nobody knows what the fuck is going on it doesn't seem like yeah there's yeah. just no contributors on this team i think this chapter does a good job setting the stakes for the rest of the book though it's pretty clear from lovo's encounter with charity burbage here 
what the world is going to be like if he prevails, and it's pretty horrifying. Yes! Professor Burbage taught the children of witches and wizards all about muggles, how they are not so different from us. One of the Death Eaters spat on the floor. Charity Burbage revolved to face Snape again. Severus, please, please, silence, said Voldemort with another twitch of Malfoy's wand, and Charity fell silent as if gagged. Not content with corrupting and polluting the minds of wizarding children, last week Professor Burbage wrote an impassioned defense of mudbloods in the Daily Prophet. Wizards, she says, must accept these thieves of their knowledge and magic. The dwindling of the purebloods is, says Professor Burbage, a most desirable circumstance. She would have us all mate with muggles, or, no doubt, werewolves. Nobody laughed this time. Yeah, I mean, he sets out a pretty clear vision for his leadership, and it's not great. It's not the most promising. But it's also, he's so boring. Yeah. It's one of the, it's like when you're reading, um... Moby Dick. Monomania is incredibly dull if you're not the monomaniac. <laughs> like, the rest of them just have to spend all their time listening to his bad jokes and waiting to watch him kill people. It seems incredibly dull to be a Death Eater. Yeah, it's a lot of dull and scary at the dull same time. Dull and scary at the same time. But I just, you can't really tell how much the rest of them buy into this ideology rather than are just sort of along for the ride. I mean, I think they buy into it for sure. Um, you know, they all have agency. They all decided to, like, hook up with Lovo, I guess, on their own kind of fucked up principles. But are they all that chill with what it's going to take to enforce that i i don't know they all seem they all seem pretty disturbed when uh nagini chows down on charity burbage to be fair that's very disturbing yeah i think the problem here is that the death eaters are not very finely drawn yeah so we don't actually get a very clear sense of who the enemy is other than lovo and it does have this very stoogy kind of secondary Disney villain yeah, foolery. Like stormtroopers or whatever. You know? Yeah. Like, who the fuck is Yaxley? Who the fuck is Yaxley? I mean, I know he's, like, been around before. I recognize the name. Yeah, I don't I'm pretty recognize sure he's been name. in. You know, yeah. I, he's been mentioned before, but... But it's just this out-of-nowhere guy that all of a sudden has this really important set of duties and we get no characterization. We don't know anything about Yaxley except that he's another... I mean, it's like in the last scene, in, or the the scene on the roof in the last book, with those weird twins the just Caros, like yeah. yuck, yuck, yucking. <laughs> They're all so boring and dumb, and you just wonder why does Lobo hang out with these yahoos? Uh, Lobo's jokes are boring and dumb, also. To be fair, like when he's yucking it up about whether or not Malfoy's gonna babysit Remus and Tonks's cubs, a 
Cubs isn't even like the right word. It would be pups, right? For wolves. Wolves give birth to pups. Yeah, wolves aren't bears. So uh, you're not even right animal wise uh <laughs> lofo well, and then everybody has to sort of go ah, ha, 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 you're so funny lovo should be called the snark lord ascending jesus <laughs> this chapter uh it's not that funny it's not that funny but i guess it, that that's the bully thing right well it's also a good reminder that like racist jokes aren't that funny i mean the thing about trafficking in really tired bigoted tropes is that they're not particularly creative or amusing. Yeah. So you have to have a really poor sense of humor and a lot of just malice in your heart in order to laugh at a joke like that. Like it's not, it's not humor. Yeah. It's just nor, shared malice. Nor is it creative. And I mean, the whole point is to humiliate the Malfoys and Draco and put them in their place. Because how is Draco even supposed to respond to that? Yeah, I feel because for if you're Draco like here. no, then yeah, then you've sort of bought into the premise of the joke, but right. I I don't know. Draco's also not witty enough to come up with a repost. Well, Draco's also fucking horrified. Yeah, I actually feel really bad for Draco. Draco is in a deeply traumatic situation and not extricating himself from it anytime soon, and it's gonna ruin his life. Yeah. So, um, but I mean, I do think. It's clear the Death Eaters and the Malfoys, they're ideologically aligned with uh, Yeah, but Voldemort. I mean, I think Voldemort goes a little harder than the rest of them Some of do. them are thinking, I, the Malfoys clearly are in over their heads. Oh, I think the Malfoys... That's the problem with getting a little fashy, you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. hard to pump the brakes on it. It's the thing, you can be kind of fascist and curious, and then you get all the way in, and it's like, oh, you want to commit genocide, and now you're just on board for that. Yeah. So good luck. Congratulations with that choice, Malfoys. So it's just, yeah, it's better to have an inclusive worldview, you know what I mean? Because eventually, if you follow it to, if you follow your exclusive worldview to, uh... It's logical conclusions. logical conclusions, you don't end up in a pretty place. Well, usually you become one of the people that gets excluded eventually, because that's where, I mean, that's like the corridor down which you're walking. Yeah. Everybody gets culled eventually. So... A weird thing about this chapter is there are some kind of sexual overtones, which we don't very often get in Harry Potter. But so first of all, you have this wand comparing scene, which is very self-evidently about penises, (laughs) which is un-JK Rowling. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, but I mean, wands, you know, pretty phallic. They're incredibly phallic, but comparing lengths is more phallic than she's taken it before but then the other and more important sexual overtone here we don't usually do this but doesn't come directly from these texts but what we have learned from the creations in this world since is that lovo and bellatrix are fucking they're smashing yeah during this time period is when the fucking auger what's her face gets birthed yeah i don't remember what her name is Right? This is like when she would have been born. Mm-hmm. Around now. In the last year or so of Lovo's life. Yeah. In Cursed Child, uh, Lovo and Bellatrix have a baby, uh, by the way. Um, so there are all these scenes where her face is 
flushed with emotion and they do have that moment that is almost tender it does describe a yearning for closeness yeah on she part. is incredibly she pleasure she is incredibly sexually attracted to lovo and there are a lot of cues in the text that that is the case she is not just ideologically into him she wants to and is fucking him <laughs> which is interesting information would that even work I don't know. I assume he's probably shooting blanks. Like he's not human enough to Clearly have not, though, DNA left. Clearly not, though, because there's there's a baby in uh, cursed child. I know. So yeah, you think all that? Uh, I find that to be absurd. But this is the. I mean, if we are to believe that cursed child is canon, which I know a lot of us sort of question, <laughs> but fine, it's in the. It's one of the texts. It's canon. They're doing it yeah, right now. I, Apparently I wonder if the so. other Death Eaters know that. It's like a Death Eater rumor. Yeah. Well, lucky for Bellatrix. Yeah, if that's your thing, I God, guess. It I mean, horrifying. Ugh. Yeah, literally horrifying. That's probably why she likes it like that, though. He does. That's probably how she likes it, right? We are meant to. We are given to understand at various points that Tom Riddle has a sort of sexual charisma. Yeah, with the but, uh, the woman who owns all the. The collector, the antiques collector, yeah. uh, whose name escapes me at the moment. But these books are incredibly asexual in a lot of ways, so his sexiness doesn't really come through. But hers does. Bellatrix is a pretty sexy character. Yeah, well, especially as played by Helena Bonham I mean, Carter. That's true. I yeah. think it's hard to imagine it as someone other than Helena Bonham Carter, and she has incredible sexual magnetism, so that's fair. That is who I imagine when I read these words, but... She is a she's a sexual character. Yeah. I don't know. These bo- they're just darkening in every perceptible possible way and that includes getting some sort of like dark snaky sex. I kind of like the idea of a horny Voldemort, honestly, because I mean, in real world like cult situations, you often see if it were, the book were, like, more realistic, Voldemort would probably be sleeping with, like, all the Death Eaters. Yeah, that's true. Uh, L- Draco, I mean, uh, Lucius would be, like, giving over Narcissa for, like, the good of the order kind of thing. Yeah. No, that's absolutely true. In most cult situations, the cult leader is... Especially a monomaniac. Taking like advantage Lovo. of yeah. sexual it, access to vulnerable It would be very women. fucked up. It would be. So, yeah, you're right. That's, like, more accurate. Yeah, my guess would be he's not limiting himself to uh, Bellatrix. Although it doesn't seem like there's that many openings for Death Eaters. No. Uh, female Death Eaters. Uh, and... Narcissa seems like she might be safe from him. Yeah. Well, Lovo. What a creep. He is a creep. This has nothing to do with anything in this chapter, but a weird thing is nobody ever mentions Barty Crouch Jr. At this meeting or at any other meeting, nobody ever says, oh, you know why we're all here? Because Barty Crouch Jr. did Lovo solid and brought him back to life by kidnapping Harry Potter. Yeah. It's just very obvious that she rewrote that ending. It's weird that that because it seems like thing has just been erased. She, the author, has just forgotten that that character exists. <laughs> He's just he just vanishes from the consciousness of the universe. I mean, it could be intentional because remember, Barty said, "Oh, I'll be remembered forever and hailed as it doesn't the Lovo's feel intentional true servant." And that's you know, Lovo kind of he regards his Death Eaters as pretty disposable. I think that J.K. Rowling just sort of forgot Barty Crouch Jr. exists. But I feel like also Lovo would be using Barty's awesomeness and his martyred status 
and lording it over people, well, saying like, oh, why can't, actually, why can't you be more like Barty? Honestly, Barty is the only one that's ever done anything real for Lord Voldemort. Seriously. Like, Bellatrix killed Sirius Black, and that's it. None of them have succeeded in, I mean, honestly, fucking Wormtail is the only other one who's been of any use during his lifetime. Yeah, like, seriously. gave him the, pa- he gave him the Potters, and all of the rest of them, and Snape, but is ultimately going to be his downfall. But in the meantime, fucking killed Dumbledore. Yeah. So all of the rest of the Death Eaters are so utterly useless. No Barty. Well, they're no Barty's. Yeah. Uh, what do we think about Charity Burbage oh, being murdered here? I mean, it's so awful. It is terrible. We and haven't it's... really been introduced to her. Is it better that we just kind of get this random no, it's victim? Or... I wish that she had appeared for a single line in any of the previous six books. I mean, she's a teacher at Hogwarts. Presumably right, yeah. we would have like seen her at the head table. Yeah. I feel like it almost would have been more shocking if it had been Flitwick or someone like that. Oh, it would have been much better if it was someone remotely known to us. Yeah. But it's still upsetting. I mean, it's super disturbing. And it is a really good way of establishing his worldview because where his real hatred lies is for blood traders. Yeah, he is pissed. Oh, he, he she writes an op-ed. Yeah. And gets murdered for it, which is, I mean, pretty on brand. Yeah. Also, because J.K. Rowling, we're going to get to this in a minute, but weirdly hates the press <laughs> and punishes all of those who participate in the press throughout yeah. this world it's, building it's interesting to see lovo get so animated here because i think it had always been an open question how much does he actually believe in his whole shtick and how much is kind of an excuse for power and the anti-muggle stuff is a hundred percent real it's that's that's his true heart i believe Ugh. well clearly as we've seen here yeah but i also think he does it to scare the death eaters i mean he does it to give this sort of we mean business yeah show to the Death Eaters. Right. And she tells Narcissa and Bellatrix that they better fucking off Tonks. No. Yeah, he's like, no, we're... There's no room for... Mercy. Mercy here, which is uh, is pretty frightening. Dude, fucking Snape works... worked alongside this woman for decades. Dude, Snape can't blow his cover for some rando, though. I know, but I guess, whatever, we don't know his inner life. This is one of those things where I... I really hope she never does this because it would just be ruinously annoying. But sometimes you want to read these books from Snape's perspective. Like he's, yeah. well, he's the point of view where I'm like, what were you thinking? I mean, all I this think time? this part is tough on Snape. This is a character building moment. This is a character development moment for Snape, too. He has to watch all this go down. I mean, does he have to? I don't know. I guess so. Yeah, it's, he absolutely does. It's complicated. He got himself into this mess, though. Yeah. We'll have plenty of opportunities to discuss that. The shades of gray that are Severus Snape. Yeah. What do you think of dinner, Nagini? Ooh. It's one of the better lines There's in, so, many other, so far in the book. I just keep thinking there's so many other weird things he could have said there. Like what? Like, soups on, Nagini. <laughs> he would never have said something that weird. <laughs> Nom noms, Nagini. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's yum yum time, Nagini. Uh, and all the Death Eaters are just like, oh, come on, man. Like, do we have Dude, to do this? Yeah. This is so all, fucked up. Like, I know we're dark, but this just seems a little extra. Does the snake usually eat people? Like, what's Nagini's diet? 
on a regular she eats basis. Mammals. Just whatevs. She yeah. eats like rabbits and stuff. Yeah. Doesn't she? He feeds her like rats. I think so. Yeah. I, I feel like Wormtail is responsible for procuring. Yeah. Snake usually, food. usually Wormtail feeds Nagini. That's the whole thing. And then Wormtail milks Nagini. Uh. Yeah. Everything about Nagini is horrifying. I wish Harry had recruited the Python from Book One as like the good Python, the counterbalance to Nagini, and that they had become like pals. Harry. Yeah. Harry does not use parcel tongue enough to his no. own advantage. She uses it to open a door once. Yeah. Like, all right. Harry could really Harry could sick, really make friends superpower. with the snakes. Make, it's true. Make the snakes your allies. But then the snake would eat Hedwig. Give the give it some other food. That's There's snake true. food. Yeah. Give it those weird baby mice. But he doesn't know at the time that he's a wizard. It's just a weird encounter he has Find with Find that snake. Go back and get that snake. Get that snake. He lets it free. I know. You want, In my fan fiction, the snake returns is like, look, I know that I owe you a favor. Let's have and a the snake favor battle. is I am joining your team. <laughs> yeah, that would be that would be rad. I am the good. I am light Nagini instead of dark Nagini. So speaking of Harry, here we are with Harry. He's back. bleeding. Always, of course. That's such a good opening line. It's Just gonna like, bleed a lot more. Yeah, frankly. Harry, you're not done bleeding, buddy. I hate to break it to you. His trunk sounds foul i like that harry is just a slob we've he's seen this before yeah he's a teen the desiccated beetle eyes though disgusting Ew, but buddy. it is hilarious to think of i feel like i have like a suitcase like this where you've only ever unpacked two-thirds of it <laughs> and for me there's a layer of like ticket stubs and like 19 like muji pens and chapsticks in the bottom of each one of my sort of large purses that I cycle through throughout the year. <laughs> I just have pens and chapstick. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's a good way to it's a good framing device to bring us back into this world and remind us of some of the events. Like there's the Potter Stinks button. Yeah, and, that's uh, true. It is it does have this nice like layers of detritus from each of the books reminding us of sort of what's happened so far. And then he finds the mirror. Except yeah. No, he'd broken the mirror. Which is stupid of and him. And then put the broken glass into... No, I think the mirror broke in, in his the trunk. trunk. Oh, okay. Which, well, either Harry, way, come on, buddy. take care of that thing. I mean, Harry's not an organized person. I know, but that's like his last gift from Sirius. Yeah, but he was like so upset. Okay, well, fair. Now he just has this weird shard that eyes appear in. That cut him. Yeah. Because the past is painful. Yep, good metaphor. So there you go. I could write a book. Um, you could write a book. <laughs> I believe that. So here's a question I have after reading. First of all, I do like these two texts that he engages with one after another in this chapter. It's a nice kind of, it sets kind of the themes and tone for the book really nicely. The retrospective on Dumbledore's life and then the interview with Rita Skeeter we get a really good sense of how this book is going to engage with the past, how it's going to engage with Dumbledore as a character, even though he's no longer with us. But hot take question. Does J.K. Rowling hate writers? Sort of seems like it. A lot of villains are writers in this book. A lot Skeeter, of villains are writers. Uh, Lockhart, who she clearly it was an execrable character. Uh, Most of the Daily Prophet writers. Uh, Xenophilius Lovegood ends up being kind of a pretty complicated, complicated dude. 
There was the guy that brought Sanguini to the party, the journalist who's who was just an investigative reporter. Who's depicted as kind of oily and gross. But with Rita Skeeter in particular, she's not wrong about much. Oh, yes, says Skeeter, nodding briskly. I devote an entire chapter to the whole Potter-Dumbledore relationship. It's been called unhealthy, even sinister. Again, your readers will have to buy my book for the whole story, but there is no question that Dumbledore took an unnatural interest in Potter from the word go. Whether that was really in the boy's best interests? Well, we'll see. It's certainly an open secret that Potter has had a most troubled adolescence. I mean, She's, she lies. She that's lies. A, that's a big no-no for I a know. journalist, No, I know obviously. she does, but, but J.K. Rowling clearly believes that most journalists mostly lie. Like, Rita Skeeter does feel to me like her sort of archetypal journalist. Or is she asking young readers to interrogate the motives and biases of the nonfiction sources they read? No, I think she hates the press. Yeah, I think that's probably the more likely I answer. Think JK, I mean, it's probably both. I think J.K. Rowling, though, fundamentally does despise the press that she interacts with in her muggle life. And has written exclusively either amoral or immoral characters that belong to the press corps. Like, yeah. there are no good journalists in these books. The funny thing is, like you were saying, Rita's not wrong about some of this stuff. She she's, lies about what she knows, but she has a good... Asshole. She has a nose for this yeah. stuff, though. She's not wrong that there's something fishy about the Snape killing Dumbledore story. She's not Snape wrong... Snape did kill Dumbledore, but, but... it's complicated. It's complicated. She's also not wrong that the relationship between Harry and Dumbledore was supremely fucked up. She calls it unhealthy. Yeah. No, what does Unnat she call it? She calls it unnatural and maybe not in his best interests. I think which she calls is, it sinister. All of which are true. Yeah, which is uh, which is true. So, whatever. Our hilarious quibbler hot take is that Rita Skeeter is amazing. Obviously, Rita Skeeter is not amazing. Rita Skeeter is a, an amoral slash immoral person. But J.K. Rowling's disdain for the profession of writing, it seems, really comes through in these books in a way that's... Which is funny for a Fucking writer. Fucking complicated, considering the fact that she's the most famous writer living in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Is there, like, some self-loathing contained in that? Or what do you think well, that's about? Well, she specifically hates nonfiction writers. Well, there's no fiction in the Wizarding World, right. except for Tales of Beetle the Bard. Right. Which isn't even a fiction. So Those she's are, like, like folk tales. Because she is it's someone... Fiction, but... She writes real with real reverence for storytelling, but she despises journalism and the press yeah and i just i think that probably does stem from her really complicated relationship to her very quick fame yeah and i do think that the british press treats its famous people pretty badly is my impression so does the american press don't get me wrong i don't think rita skeeter is a good journalist but she god she's just got her eyes open i think one of the interesting things about rita skeeter is it's one of our few windows into how other people in the wizarding world are watching and what they think about what's going on with harry potter and dumbledore and this whole saga because and it's pretty rational to look at it all and be like like what the fuck this is, is going on fucked up yeah. it's inappropriate it's keeping things from the public in ways that are really secretive and wrong and elitist and I just don't think Rita Skeeter is, I think she gets a bad rap. 
I know. While still recognizing she's the worst, she's also But she's the, the worst, worst because J.K. Rowling has made a bunch of decisions about how the only passable journalist in these books has to be evil. Yeah. I just think that there's some really complicated shit going on with J.K. Rowling's relationship to other people who write. Right. <laughs> and I just, there aren't any writers in these books that come off particularly well. No. In fact, almost anything that's been written down is pretty dangerous. Like the Tom Riddle's Diary. Yeah, texts are dangerous. Uh, the Potions book. Yeah. People. Interacting with text fucks people over in Harry Potter. <laughs> uh, so the rule is don't read, uh, says J.K. Rowling. I mean, I think no, the that, rule really is that reading that. is powerful, yeah. which I get, and that it can sort of wedge itself into you in ways that are more impactful than just passively reading a text but but texts are dangerous in harry potter and life and lies is dangerous in harry potter but also sort of this source of clarity for harry so it's going to be really interesting as we get into that a really poignant sad moment is when harry is thinking to himself about how he'd never really asked dumbledore about his life and I just think that's a useful moment to have in this middle grade book. That's a really true experience of grief, especially when you're a younger person who loses someone older. Harry finished reading, but continued to gaze at the picture accompanying the obituary. Dumbledore was wearing his familiar kindly smile, but as he peered over the top of his half-moon spectacles, he gave the impression, even in newsprint, of X-raying Harry, whose sadness mingled with a sense of humiliation. He had thought he knew Dumbledore quite well, but ever since reading this obituary he had been forced to recognize that he had barely known him at all. Never once had he imagined Dumbledore's childhood or youth. It was as though he had sprung into being as Harry had known him, venerable and silver-haired and old. The idea of a teenage Dumbledore was simply odd, like trying to imagine a stupid Hermione or a friendly blast-ended Scroot. He had never thought to ask Dumbledore about his past. No doubt it would have felt strange, impertinent even, but after all, it had been common knowledge that Dumbledore had taken part in that legendary duel with Grindelwald, and Harry had not thought to ask Dumbledore what that had been like nor about any of his other famous achievements. No, they had always discussed Harry. Well, and I also think the thing about being the age Harry is, is even if he wasn't the chosen one and sort of objectively among the most important people in the world, part of being his age is thinking that you're the most important person in the world. And I do think the realization that other people who seemed like devices in your story have their own stories is a very realistic kind of realization for a young teenage character I guess he's not a young teen anymore he's 17 but for a teenage character you know I feel even in way less fraught situations when you're 17 and and lose a grandparent and realize oh they weren't just my grandpa. They were this whole person and maybe I should have understood that better. Like that's a real experience that young people have. Mm -hmm. It's part of learning that you're not the center of the universe. 
But Harry realizes, oh, Dumbledore and I only talked about my past and my future and my place in the world and what I meant. And I never, like, Harry doesn't even fucking know who Grindelwald is. Yeah, well, he should have paid more attention in History of Magic. The eternal lesson of the Harry Potter books is that Harry should have fucking listened in History of Magic. He knows nothing. Unless Bins is so long-winded that they just never got up to that point. You know, it's like when you take AP History, and then it's like, oh, shit, we missed the 50s. It's like May now, you know? Yeah. We're behind. We didn't, we didn't yeah. get that far. <laughs> I do remember— You're going to have to read about the Cold War on your own, kids. <laughs> yeah. We only ever got to basically the 80s in like one history class ever Speed when I was through World up. War II because he spent way too much time on like Reconstruction or whatever. Actually, no, we spend more. T- we spent too much time on like the Civil War. Are you kidding? Nobody teaches Nobody, anything about like, Reconstruction. Reconstruction is like the lost era of American everyone's history. Everyone's like, uh, the Civil War happened, and then, and then you fast like, forward to civil rights. You learn the word carpetbaggers, yeah. and then you're done. So, sorry, that was a bad example, actually. No. Uh, I was going to say, more I about think Reconstruction. you're the only person that know, that learned anything about Reconstruction, yeah, and I had really good history teachers. later after school. Also, read Black Reconstruction in America. It's very large. It's true. It's hard, but uh, we're both trying. Eric Foner is another good place to start. If you're interested in Reconstruction, uh, this is now a podcast about Reconstruction. You would um, be able to do that. I would not. <laughs> I need to do a lot more research, uh, I think. Um, yeah, Harry didn't know about who Grindelwald was. But I do like this idea of this chapter getting into Dumbledore's biography a bit. It situates Harry in this much larger timeline because Elpheus Doge says the battle with Grindelwald was one of the pivotal moments of wizarding history yeah Uh, so I mean this thing with Voldemort it's not the this is not what all of history has been like leading up to Harry is part of this long stream of well that's always a good reminder Mm -hmm. as a young person you're you're part of a you're part of the whole stream of time yeah and your one moment isn't the only spike that's ever happened. So I like I like this moment of Harry. I like how we're seeing Harry mature into these adult realizations. It's a nice, it's a nice way to cap off this great series about childhood. And another thing I like is that I actually don't think that Harry could have deepened his understanding of who Dumbledore is while Dumbledore was alive. No, because he was like the marble man. Yeah, the thing that J.K. Rowling has done really well here is acknowledge that Dumbledore had to die in order for us to come to understand his life. Because he was just untouchable while he was alive. And we can't, like Harry wouldn't have given himself permission to do this work, his own sort of inner work on that relationship in relation with the living Dumbledore. I mean, part of that's Dumbledore's fault. Oh, I think a lot of it is Dumbledore's fault. I think Dumbledore has sort of self-hagiographed, for sure. Yeah. I love that she is skewering her own sacred cow here. I love that, too. She's props, great. Props to Rowling here. She's she, really good at deconstructing some of the legends that she has built up herself. She created this whole mythos and now she's tearing it to shreds in an incredibly satisfying way. Mm-hmm. And it's very brave to do. And I don't think a lot of authors that create that Dumbledore character do a really good job of then deconstructing that character from so many different angles. It'd be like in The Return of the King if Tolkien was like, uh, you know what, actually Gandalf was bullshit. Yeah, 
I mean, which there, doesn't really happen. Which doesn't happen. No, he comes back as Gandalf the White. He comes back as even better. Yeah, Gandalf just gets better He's and just better. Like more the chillest. <laughs> even though Gandalf's plan sort of terrible, similar to Dumbledore's various terrible plans. Let's give the ring to a Hobbit. Well, and the what? thing is, we ultimately come out continuing to believe that Dumbledore is a giant. Yeah. And a incredibly important and net good historical figure, I right. think, is where Harry ends up. But it's important to complicate. I mean, kill your darlings. It's important to complicate your heroes. Yeah. And J.K. Rowling does that better than almost any other, certainly than any other author for young people. Well, that I've read so far. Yeah, but I mean. Maybe somebody else. Famous, somebody else might like, do better. Of these, yeah, but of these kind of like seminal, like giant texts maybe when we read twilight breaking dawn we'll find out all the reasons edward was bad we already know all the reasons edward was but maybe bad. stephanie meyer will acknowledge them uh spoiler alert she will not no we do not what about get... jacob do we find out why he was actually bad the whole time no we got some good complicating of carlisle in the last one yeah that's true so who is i think probably who the book should be actually about the closest to dumbledore <laughs> So, who's your unsung hero? My unsung hero is our Rita Skeeter's editors for turning around this 900-page tome in, like, a month. This is, like, a feat. Presumably it's not very well edited, though, so maybe they don't deserve that. But, I mean, this is impressive. This is impressive feat for the publishing industry. Indeed. Mine... I also think it's a little funny for J.K. Rowling to make fun of Rita Skeeter for writing a 900-page book in four weeks, given her, given the fact that she occasionally received the feedback that maybe her 900-page books were written a little fast and could have used an edit. <laughs> there are a couple of entries into the Harry Potter canon where you read them and you're like, somebody could have done one more pass here. But... Whatever. Now everybody's going to be like, we came in too hard at them in the very first. Guys, this book is so great. You know we think that. Give me a break. My unsung hero is Aberforth Dumbledore, who's just keeping an eye out. Just one single eye. And I'm excited to get to know him better. Also very sad that he went through his entire life with the reputation as a goat fucker. So. That's not true, right? I don't think it's true. Seems like it was a setup. That seems like some Rita Skeeter goss. And I don't think it's accurate, but it sucks to have that be your reputation. So I feel for Aberforth. Buddy. This week's episode is brought to you by Malfoy Manor, the perfect location for all your evil off-site staff retreat needs. Uh, Does Voldemort just live there now? I mean, I get he says he's a guest there, but where is he staying in Malfoy Manor? He probably took over the master bedroom. That's where I'm thinking. Uh, Poor Narcissa and Malfoy are just sleeping on the couch. Or somewhere. Like, yeah, Voldemort is not on... What if Nagini's in Draco's room? <laughs> or if they got a crib for Nagini to, to put him in, in the master bedroom. I don't think he sleeps very far from Voldemort. No, Do they sleep true. in the same bed? I, ugh, probably. Oh, maybe. Oh, and then Bellatrix is in there and Nagini's, Nagini's watching... Like, winding or around in them. part of it uh gross so much uh, to think about yeah voldemort's definitely not like sleeping on like the pullout sofa though no. you know he's he's got his own room does voldemort not have a house yeah, where it seems like he's mostly just been crashing at different death eaters places for decades seems like he was at snape's for a while 
Um, he lived at um, the Riddle House yeah. when he was a freaky baby. He lived on Coral's head for a bit. <laughs> so, Lovo's just like the world's worst couch surfer. Terrible. He shows up. Poor Narcissa is like, is your fucking evil boss still staying with us? <laughs> can you please tell me when he can leave? I'm sure Nagini's just leaving like snakeskins everywhere. Yeah, and they don't have a house elf anymore to clean up. So, I mean, yeah, well, boohoo. That's Draco's job for sure. Yeah, clean poor it Draco. Away. Just clean up snake Cleaning skins. up snake skins. The uh. the audiobook clips that you heard are courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. They are from Jim Dale's performance of the final entry into the Harry Potter series, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. You can um, find us wherever it is that you get podcasts, with the exception of Spotify, which we're working on. So sorry about that. But everywhere else you can find us. If that happens to be Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and a nice review. We do love those. And you can find us on social media at Quibbler Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Like we said, you definitely want to sign up tinyletter.com slash Quibbler Podcast. It's a really good newsletter and we're going to put it out a little more often, especially as we take a slightly slower pace to get through this book. So we've got plenty of time together left, friends. Next week, we will be reading the chapters of Deathly Hallows called The Dursleys Departing and The Seven Potters. So it gets real fast. Thanks, amigos. Harry was bleeding, clutching his right hand in his left and swearing under his breath. He shouldered open his bedroom door. You're hit. You're bleeding, man. I ain't got time to bleed. Oh. Okay. At the end of each day, all over the country, Nothing satisfies so many people in so many ways. Charity Burbage. It's what's for dinner.